Hi, everyone. Welcome to the panel show. My name's David Shore, and I'm the producer of the show, and I also portray Professor Pipe, the host of the panel show. Each month, we bring together two real journalists and two improvisers in character to talk about real-world topics and events. Now, this very first episode is 100% Trump, and if you live in Ontario, it's also Doug Ford free. So Trump free and Doug Ford free, because why bother? Um... If you have any questions about the show or if you want to uh, uh, send us a message and uh, suggest a topic or send in a question to any of the panelists, you can check us out at the Monkey Toast website. That's monkeytoast.com. The panel show is produced under the Monkey Toast banner. You can get more info about the show there and the other shows that we do all live down here in Toronto. Uh, This episode of the panel show was recorded in front of a live audience on Saturday, October 26th at Comedy Bar in downtown Toronto. Um, There were a few audio issues. You'll probably hear at some point what sounds like radio interference. Hopefully our editor Alex can clean some of that out, but that is there. And as well, there might be some background music because that night happened to be the night of Comedy Bar's Halloween party. Next year, I highly recommend you attending. Okay, as well, there was an issue with the beginning of the intros of the journalists got cut off. So I'll read those to you in a moment. In any case, we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the panel show. Tonight's journalists are, from the National Post and CBC's ad issue, Andrew Coyne. And joining Andrew, we have a freelance journalist who you've seen in the Toronto Star, Medium, BuzzFeed News, Vice, Global News, and Canada Land. Please welcome to the panel, Sean Craig. Tonight's improvisers are portraying two of the biggest acting legends to ever grace the silver screen. Two Hollywood icons that will have the millennials out there saying, who the fuck are they? (laughs) All right, well, let me tell you exactly who they are. She's won a record-breaking four Academy Awards for acting in Morning Glory, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Lion in the Winter, and On Golden Pond. She also starred in such classic films as The African Queen, The Philadelphia Story, Bringing Up Baby, and Woman of the Year. Please welcome the totally fake Catherine Hepburn! Thank, thank you so much. Good to see you. All right. Now, he's only won one... Oh, thank you. That's, yes, he's only won one measly Oscar, ironically, for a film that Miss Hepburn put together and also starred in, The Philadelphia Story. That's correct. This is yep, correct. Never lets me forget. <laughs> he's also the star of the classic films It's a Wonderful Life, Rear Window, Harvey, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and he earned the rank of Major General in the United States Air Force. Yeah, he sure did. Please welcome the totally not legit Jimmy Stewart. Oh, yeah. Good to, glad to be here. Good to have yeah. you. Yeah. Yes. Very good. I'm your host for the evening, Professor Pipe, and I'm a visiting professor at the University of Toronto School of Cannabis Arts. Yes. It's a new faculty, brand new. Yes. So welcome, panel. Good to see you all. Welcome, Professor. You're a visiting professor. I am, yes. Uh, where are you visiting from? I'm visiting from prison. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got five to ten, and it's it's good to be out for another. How come I got stuck sitting next to you? Well, That's because a... you're a handsome man, Jimmy Stewart. Well, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. There we go. Yes. No. Okay. So, panel, let's talk. Let's start tonight with a topic nobody wants to keep talking about, nope. but everybody is the federal election. 
Okay. In a tight, if not uninspiring race, Justin Trudeau remains prime minister, mm -hmm. but with the minority government. Now, to any Americans listening out there in podcast land, that means his liberal party must get some of the other parties to vote with them in order to get legislation passed in parliament. You'll never understand it. Okay. <laughs> the Trudeau liberals won 157 seats, down 27 from the 184 they won in 2015. The conservative party under Andrew Scheer increased its seat count by 22, going from 99 in 2015 to 121 today. The NDP under Jagmeet Singh lost 20 seats, going from 44 to 24. And the Greens under Elizabeth May increased their seat total from two to three. But the big winners on the night were the Bloc Quebecois, while only running in Quebec, finished in third place, increasing their seat count from the past election from 10 to 32 seats. So, panel. Any surprises with the election results? Andrew Cohen, you were on the CBC uh, election uh, results panel, so you must have talked about this to death. Let's hear what you have to say. Well, it was surprising in, in one respect how inert the whole election campaign was. So little changed in the course of the campaign, except that both of the major parties just seemed to go on a steady decline. Uh, neither of them really ran very good campaigns. Both, in a sense, lost. I mean, the government, the, the liberals remained in power, but with the weakest mandate of any government in the history of the country. Uh, the conservatives who were facing a very weakened prime minister with lots of strikes against him, if they'd run a good campaign, I think had a good chance of removing him. They didn't do very well uh, as well. As you mentioned, the only real winner were the, the party that most of us would like to see disappear, which is the Bloc Québécois. So it was a pretty <laughs> depressing spectacle all around. Uh, Catherine Hepburn, Canadian politics is, is new to you, but you were uh, very progressive in your day, always uh, uh, oh, there for women's right to vote and abortion rights and all those things. What are your thoughts on the recent Canadian election? Well, it uh, wasn't a woman among them, was there? Well, there was Elizabeth May. Oh, no, but no, I mean seriously, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyone, I, I would like to see really making moves uh, on one of the, the leading parties. That's nothing against Ms. May. Uh, you know, I, we absolutely agree on things. And I, um, I I would say, you know, I, what I found so interesting was just how many parties you have in the first place. There you know, parties, once sure. you get past two, you know, what a joy it is to see. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Craig, any surprises for you in the election? No, I, I would just reiterate what Andrew said, which is that the, you know, the most, the only thing that surprised me was how poorly the two major party leaders performed. You know, Justin Trudeau, I mean, I'm mostly from New England, and he basically, to me, is sort of, you know, he, he reads as this sort of Canadian iteration of, like, a, you know, woke dynastic Kennedyism uh, that sort of falls in, into ashes when, you know, when the electorate gets exposed to it. He came into office on soaring rhetoric, and every single time, you know, that rhetoric was sort of subject to any sort of serious scrutiny, it, you know, it, it falls away. Um, the same thing was sort of for Scheer. Like, you know, I also, I'm insanely Catholic, and Andrew Scheer weirds me out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so uh, if, if, if exposure to that man gives me the heebie-jeebies, um, I, you know, I, don't, I, I perfectly understand why the public was perfectly uncomfortable with him. Uh, the, the only saving grace, I guess, of the campaign would have been Jagmeet Singh, who also was a horrible leader for two years. His party mm -hmm. was massively indebted. They lost 20 seats. You know, he, he was basically fighting from behind. He happened to run a good campaign. He was the only person, uh, he and Blanchette, the bloc leader, who when Canadians saw, they took up interest in. Jimmy Stewart, you are also new to Canadian politics. Yeah. And you well, were a long time Repu 
Republican. I sure, yeah, yeah. Don't hold that against me. But, uh, you put me up here between a guy out of prison and an insane Catholic. I don't know what to make of that. But, uh, you know, a while back I did a film called uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington there. Uh, yeah, I uh, didn't win an Oscar for that. but uh, no, uh, no, I got nominated, though. You did. You were yeah. nominated a lot. I know, yeah. barely won. But anyways, so I know what it's like to lose, I guess is what I'm saying. But that's what you, what you need is less of these, these Scheer and Trudeau and these leaders, these old twisted old coots. You know, you need real people there. Like, you got to go to your, what do you call your Washington up here? Ottawa. Ottawa. Right. Yeah, that's nice. That's <laughs> cute. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you got to get, like, uh, like, real people there. Like, what's, what's your name? Andrew. But what's, what, what's your last name? Dodds. Dodds, you need a Mr. Dodds to go to Ottawa, you know, represent the real people. Like in, in that movie, I went down there and I, I talked for 25 hours straight. You filibustered. I filibustered, yeah, until I literally passed out. Yeah. That wasn't even acting, that was real. I just talked, they just had one take, me, 25 hours talking. But that's what I'm saying, you gotta get rid of these old coots and get some real people in there that can connect with what's, what, the, what the citizens care about. Well, let's talk a bit more about the party leaders. I mean, almost all of them did uh, poorly, except for the block. And uh, Sean brought up uh, Jadmit Singh with the NDP. So why don't, why don't we start there? The NDP lost 20 seats, but they do hold the balance of power in Parliament. They can you know, pretty much help the Liberals get anything passed that they want passed. Um, and they were expected to do much worse. Like Sean said, they were basically disappearing, you know, missing for the first two years. Mr. Singh was the uh, leader of the party. But Mr. Singh was the only candidate to generate a genuine surge in support as the election went on. So should Jadmit Singh remain uh, as NDP leader? or should they be looking for someone else? Catherine Hepburn, why don't we start with you? Oh, That's good. Yes, you know, I, I will say I saw, I saw Mr. Singh speak on several occasions and found myself <laughs> moved. You know, I was, I found him to be uh, a man with, with uh, palpable integrity. He reminded me, actually, of a young, um, <coughs> of a young Humphrey Bogart. Oh, I thought she was going <laughs> to say me for a second. No, Jimmy, it's never you. No, fair <laughs> enough. No. No, but, uh, you know, someone who could just look at you and you would know exactly what what he was thinking. You know, uh, Bogey and I, when we were working on the African... You don't mind a digression? No, we're all for it here on the When well, we yeah. were working on the African Queen, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, Lauren was there as well. That's Lauren Bacall um, was there as well. His and wife. we would go out and have a drink or 17. And, <laughs> and you know, Bogey would, would look at you and he would just... He would tell you a story. And in that story, you would find pearls of wisdom. You know, he told me this one about um, you. You might be familiar with um, Louis B. Mayer. Yes, sure. he told me one about him actually uh, when he was working on an earlier project. Uh, you know, <coughs> with Houston, who has uh, happened. It was actually John Houston, uh, correct the director. The director sure. Yes, and Houston, of course, who had worked with Mayer. Well, I should go back earlier than that. <laughs> he was actually speaking to an interesting thing that had happened with uh, Hitch, uh, that's Alfred Hitchcock, um, you know, and, and Hitch had said, you know, this absolutely incredible thing, which, um, you know, he had heard, he had heard himself from a, an aspiring young producer, Mankiewicz, and, and I, and I remember he looked right at, now this is, of course, Hitch, no, no, no I'm sorry, it's Mayor I'm talking about, of course, what I mean to say is Bogey looked at him, right. and, mm -hmm. and by him, I say, he looked uh, straight at me in the eye, and, you know, <laughs> all of this is to say, I quite admire Singh. <laughs> Interesting. Very, that's, that's fascinating. Um, 
Sean, we already, you already spoke a little bit about this. Do you think that Singh should stay on as NDP leader, or do you think they need to get somebody new? It stands to reason, given the last month, he brought the party support back up from mm -hmm. basically flatlining. Uh, they also had some of their best fundraising days in the last two years uh, after his great performance in the leaders' debates. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and after a couple of viral memes happened. It's also my understanding that the you know, because the NDP is not a particularly successful party nationally in terms of, you know, it's, it, it governs very, it, oftentimes it's staff, it's most talented staff move back and forth between where it's elected. Right. And a lot of NDP talent was in Alberta when Rachel Notley was in office. And a lot of that talent came back to Ottawa during the election, which is why you saw sort of the NDP strategy realign, is there were a lot of people who weren't around for the last three or four years in that party who had brought it, you know, to its heights under Jack Layton, uh, who had gone out west and who came back. And so the, you know, the party infrastructure itself, because it had been through the you know, the unanticipated death of a leader under Leighton, Mulcair's mm -hmm. uh, flame out, uh, you know, and then you had Jagmeet Singh, who brought in his own team, but had also lost a lot of talent to the Notley administration. Um, you know, it, the, the party's in flux, but he clearly demonstrated that he has a gift on the campaign trail. And if, and if they can harness that, if they can expose him to the Canadians, uh, you know, that, that hadn't been previously before, why wouldn't you try that? I mean, you've, you've got a minority parliament anyway, or you're probably going to have an election in the next two and a half years. Uh, it makes more sense keeping him than, say, it does keeping Andrew Scheer for the Conservatives, who, you know, who yeah. Who seems to have hit a ceiling? Yeah. So, uh, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I, I, I'm still trying to figure out what the heck Catherine was talking about in that last uh, speech there. Because she really talked at your pace. I thought you would totally clue in. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I, she had me, but then she lost me a little bit. Uh, but, I mean, I, uh, you know, you got to forgive my brain. I've been dead for 20 years, so <laughs> it's uh, sometimes hard to keep up, is what I'm saying. But uh, uh, this Jasmine Singh, Jagmeet, how do you say his first name? Jagmeet. Jagmeet Singh, uh, you know, I, I like him. I mean, he's got, he, I've seen him, as uh, Catherine was saying, I watched some of his talking there, and he really seems like he's a, he's a natural guy, you know, he's like an everyman, which was kind of my niche, if you will, and I'm like, hot diggity, that's what we need, somebody who's just a normal guy who can talk to people and answer questions, you know, straight up, not... Like not, Andrew Dobbs? Like Andrew Dobbs, yeah, <laughs> let's get Andrew Dobbs on the, the bus to, to, to your Washington there uh -huh. in Ottawa, sure, whatever you call it, he knows where he's going, and he can uh, talk, and uh, let's get some real people there, that's what I'm saying. All right, Andrew Coyne, what are your thoughts? I, I on guess the NDP? I guess the NDP's problem is that Singh did just well enough to stay on, yeah. uh, but not well enough to actually advance their cause. And I, I think we're going to be reminded, unfortunately, now that the campaign is over, of some of his failings as a leader. And to be fair to him, you know, it's tough for anybody to move from provincial politics to federal politics to go from being premier, let alone you know, basically a, a, a fairly inexperienced. Uh, um, a member of the provincial parliament to make that leap to federal politics, which mm -hmm. is so complicated and so many pressures upon you. And now we're going to be into a minority parliament, which is all pressure politics all the time, where you're constantly being forced to choose, are you going to support the government or aren't you? And where the government is going to make maximum advantage of that, uh, uh, putting squeeze plays on the party saying, if, we, if you don't for, go for this, we go to an election. And the NDP does not want to go to another election anytime soon. They have no money. Uh, they, they are demoralized in terms of their, their, they lost that Quebec beachhead that was such, so important to them and gave them such a sense that maybe they could break out of the third party status they've been in since their founding. Uh, so I think he's in for some, uh, some very difficult times ahead uh, where his judgment is going to be tested and his judgment prior to the election was not always shown to be uh, as sharp as it should be. Let's, uh, let's move on to the next topic. Everybody's talking about uh, Western alienization. Uh, but we're in Toronto, so let's not. Um, yes, sure. let's, yes, let's just skip over that. We'll just skip over that. 
So but let's move on. Uh, Scorsese and Coppola versus Marvel. Yes. So Academy Award winning director Martin Scorsese caused a stir with a rec in a recent interview in Empire magazine where he said, quote, I don't see Marvel movies. I tried, you know, but that's not cinema. Honestly, the closest I can think of them at as the closest I can think of them, as well made as they are, with actors doing the best they can under the circumstances, is theme parks. It isn't the cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional, psychological experiences to another human being. Then this week, Academy Award winning uh, director Francis Ford Coppola took Scorsese's statement one step further. And he said, and I quote, Martin was being kind when he said it wasn't cinema. He didn't say it was despicable, which is what I say. So, do Scorsese and Coppola have a point? Are modern superhero movies cinema? Are the two of them just grumpy old men wishing for the good old days? Uh, Jimmy Stewart, you are an icon of film. Sure, what are, what are yeah, I'm an icon. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I kind of tend to agree there. Like back in the uh, in the golden age of uh, of the movies and uh, uh, cinema and the filmmaking that Catherine and I uh, know know all too well. You know, we didn't. We didn't need superpowers in our characters, you know? There was no gamma rays or no uh, radioactive bugs just biting kids or things like that. Like, like we were, I was a hero in my movies just being an ordinary guy. What's wrong with that, you know? Mm -hmm. Vertigo, that was a movie I was in. I'm not just saying that as a random reference. I'm making no. a point here, Dave. I want to point now, out, yeah. you were horrible in that movie. I just like to say. Oh, oh wow, this turned, into, a, this turned right. into an attack I wasn't expecting. Now, you we know. see that film a lot in prison, and I can't handle the line well, when you go, I have vertigo. And it's just, and you let that woman die. because. I, oh, point. now, see, now you're attacking the characteristic of my character. I, I didn't let her die. I well. had vertigo. I had vertigo. <laughs> vertigo a powerful mental thing that stops you from being able to, to go up on those heights there. It was in the belt. I was scared. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I was scared. I don't think you were even nominated for Academy Award for that. No, movie. no, I wasn't. Thanks yeah. for rubbing that in there. Yeah, <laughs> but what I'm saying is I did that all myself. I was the hero or the man who knew too much, you know? I was just an ordinary guy mm -hmm. caught up in the middle of, uh, of the, the, the spies and the, the espionage and all that, you know? We didn't need... We, and we didn't have any of those uh, uh, CGI's, computer graphic yeah. and integrate... What, what does the I stand for? Uh, computer, computer graph. No, I got it wrong. Computer generated images. Ah, oh, whatever. All right, fine. <laughs> we didn't have computers doing stuff, you know. Me and Catherine did all our own stunts. We were uh, we were walking around on uh, wires or whatever we needed to do, you know. We didn't have to have people flying and people drawing stuff. We were we were just people people talking to people and being our own heroes. <laughs> all right, uh, Andrew Coyne. Don't laugh at what me. You, I am laughing. All right, fine. <laughs> Andrew Coyne, what are your uh, thoughts? I, on I couldn't agree with them more. Thank uh, you. I think the the reaction on, on places like Twitter is so interesting of people basically saying, you know, what do Mar Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola know about movies? Ah. Uh, but I couldn't agree. I, I am so uninterested in comic book movies. I find them so shallow and simplistic and vaguely fascist. They, there's no interesting. It's, and it's this idea that you know, there's nothing left to be said about real people dealing with real problems. Like you know, how do I love and be loved? What, how do I make a meaningful life when I'm before I die? 
you know, that somehow those stories can't be told anymore. What we need are, are people who can travel back in time and, you know, attack the Megatrons or whatever. But let I, me just I, say, I, in I the film... Them, uh, I just find them boring and shallow and stupid. In the Wolverine oh. film, Logan, I mean, he's just a guy looking to get loved and find out where he's from. I mean, it kind of breaks from the mold, that film. Yeah, but in a, in a way that's interesting or complicated or nuanced or surprising, Almost never. The, 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 I just find the scripts on these things just to be so predictable. All right, Catherine Hepburn, you are, of course, the uh, no one's won more Academy Awards. Well, thank than you. you for have you have you ever played a superhero? Or did they ever ask you to play a superhero? Uh, yes, I actually auditioned uh, for a, a role in Superman when they first did it again. Oh, you, yeah. you know, they made it a, a picture. Yes. And they had Brando in, you know, to play Jor-El, I yes. believe. And uh, you know there was there was a there, there is a there is a Mrs. Jorel, yes, in the comics, and they had me in to read mm -hmm. for it, and you know I I I loved that part I really did I thought it was just brilliantly written, nuanced as you said, <laughs> she was facing the death of her planet and uh, had no choice but to send her child to another one. Mm -hmm. There were about 14 scenes cut from Superman, uh, all of them mine. <laughs> this was 1972, I believe. And, um, you know, I was devastated at the time. Of you know, and Scorsese and um, Coppola, a couple of young bucks coming in here, you know, <laughs> with their opinions on, on cinema, you know. Houston never had time for that. He, he could find a story in anything, you know. There's no difference if they're wearing a skin tight uniform or, or one in a in a in a plane like Jimmy right they're people and we got we've got to focus on the the humanity within within these stories i happen to be a huge huge fan of marvel Yes, absolutely, yes. What's your favorite Marvel uh, movie? Thank you for asking. <laughs> the Order for Me goes Avengers 1, Iron Man 1, and not Endgame, what was I thinking? Infinity War, uh, Thor 1. Uh, I enjoyed Spider-Man, but not enough to put it in the top running. I think I'd have to say Thor Ragnarok after that. Uh, Ant-Man. Uh, I don't want to mention Ultron, but I will. I... <laughs> I think I would peg that one after Endgame. I, I would certainly say Ant-Man and the Wasp was a, a, a romp. <laughs> you know, a beautiful performance from the young Michael Douglas in those films. And I... Uh, <laughs> I find myself quite moved. I loved, uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2 was a misstep. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I came back again and again, Iron Man 3 as well, and, uh, you know, would it have to be there as well? And I, I obviously would be remiss not to mention Winter Soldier, which was the first to affect not only the cinematic universe, but the television series as well. <laughs> if we talk about television, I'd like to talk about <laughs> the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, <laughs> all of wow. this is to say I love a world-building piece. <laughs> and they built one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Thank you. Sean Craig, aren't you excited to speak after that? I am. Wow. Uh, one of my favorite film directors jumped in on this conversation, uh, the Spanish director, Pedro Almodovar. Mm -hmm. And he observed, and I agree with him 100%, that the, the real flaw with these movies, and this is a very Almodovarian critique, is he said that no one in, these, no one in Marvel movies is horny. Uh, no, there are these, there's these universes where everyone has perfect bodies. Everyone lives in this beautiful, colorful universe. Everyone, you know, you know, surrounded by specters, surrounded by you know beauty and everything, and nobody is sort of struck by the compulsion of human desire. You know, the stakes are these empty stakes, which are just fighting for a sequel. And so this is art governed by commercial pretense, and so that reduces the human stakes. You have, you know, all these movies are not self-contained works of art, which is kind of what you want in the sort of finality of art. You watch an Antonioni movie; it's filled with desire, and it's filled with regret, and it's filled with humiliation, which is what life is filled with. If you watch a Scorsese movie, it's filled with the same things, and it's filled with horny people. Um, you know, whether whether that horniness is metastasizes in good or bad ways is whatever. But the Marvel movies seem stripped devoid of all of this, as do a lot of the DC movies, because it's art governed by commerce, right? It's art that has to mm -hmm. sort of bend itself to the fact that it's a franchise, that it needs a sequel. Um, and, and so it doesn't have a unique or individual voice. You're making something in the hope of making something more, in the hope of making more money, which you know sort of violates a lot of it, principles that you would want of independent good art. And so I understand why all yes. these directors are ganging up on it. And Wolverine, which you cited as a very good example, or sorry, mm -hmm. Logan, is yes. a good example of that, because that was a standalone movie that departed from that. It wasn't hinged on the stakes that all these other superhero movies are, are hinged on. Ultron, where they, you know, they kill half the superheroes in one movie, but no, they kill yeah, half the, half the planet. Yeah, they kill half the planet. No, 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 but no one cares, because no you know you're coming back next year, and they're all going to be back again. Right. Um, because, you know, because it's owned by Disney, and, and then they're going to license those characters again and refranchise them and start up the series again. Uh, so it, you know, it's, it's art suspended in nothing, where you know, I, there's no surprise, there's no nothing. Well, I thought was interesting about uh, Avengers Endgame is that if you look at the state of the world with climate change and the planet being in trouble, that um, who is the villain again? In uh, the big guy, the Thanos. 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 The Thanos. Uh, Thanos was George kind, W. Bush. The Thanos was kind of right. The Oliver Stone. That, that getting rid of half the, the George people, W. Bush was right. would kind of save the planet and save the universe. I thought that was interesting. And just to the people listening on the podcast, if you could have seen Jimmy Stewart's face when uh, Sean said that nobody's horny in these films, well, yeah, it was just I, mean, cool. uh, I thought you had an aneurysm there. For oh, I, I, did, I, I might have. You know, I've had a few, but uh, <laughs> uh, well, it made me think. You know, I happened to watch uh, uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home the other uh, mm -hmm. the other night, and, yeah. and there there was some horniness in that. I mean, it was all teenagers mm -hmm. just teenagers, racing around. He's more interested in the girl than he is at saving the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but that that is an exception to the rule because I tend to agree with them. Whereas when we made movies back in the golden age, it was all about the horny. We just had to make it. We just had to make it subtextual. You know. Like, no, Jimmy, uh, those were just your pictures. Yeah. yeah well, I, I got nominated for a lot of awards, oh, and it okay. was all by my my method acting was all about being horny. That was really. <laughs> What oh, I brought to the table. So Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith went. Mr. To Smith went to Washington to get laid, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I, and it just I, happened I, to change the world on the way. I'm yeah. not saying that's the drive. I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, if, I, if, I may, yes. if I may, one more in defense of, the, of these pictures. Yes. I will say, you know, you have this character as, as played by uh, Mr. Downey Jr. Tony Stark is essentially the id personified, and oh. the entire first film is an experience in his... <clears throat> 
horniness, to use your phrase. Uh, you know, it's all about women and money and what he can do. And, you know, the relationship that drives him is essentially a romantic one. The entire story of Captain America is boiled down to his own romantic passion. And if you were to watch all the films to the end, you would see the conclusion there is in his romantic relationship. Uh, in fact, it somehow defies timelines in order to make that romantic relationship work. So uh, I'll go ahead and put my uh, entire career on the line and, <laughs> yeah. and say, wow, wow, wow. These, these directors are a bit of, uh, there are some jealous, jealous guys that made an oopsie by not getting in on the ground floor. Okay. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well said. Hard to argue with that. All right. Let's move on to the next topic. Let me get the paper out of the way. Oh, yes. Let's talk about Facebook. Ooh, everyone loves talking about Facebook. Apparently, Facebook is cool with politicians lying in ads. So, Facebook announced recently that would allow political ads to contain lies on its platform. They see not allowing politicians to lie in ads as limiting free speech. Now, actor-comedian Sasha Baron Cohen took exception to this and used a Nazi analogy to get his point across to Facebook CEO and founder Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Baron Cohen, the star of Borat and Ali G, tweeted, this is a quote, if he owned a fancy restaurant and four neo-Nazis came goose-stepping into the dining room and were talking loudly about, killing, about wanting to kill Jewish scum, would he serve them an elegant eight-course meal or would he tell them to get the fuck out of this restaurant? Cohen continued, he has every legal right, indeed, a moral duty, to tell them to get the fuck out of his restaurant. Now, does Facebook have a responsibility to not allow political ads to lie? And why do you think Mark Zuckerberg is hiding behind free speech? as an excuse. Uh, Sean Craig, why don't we start with you? I think Mark Zuckerberg is right, uh, to be honest. Uh, because think about it as a Canadian. If, as in Britain, for example, where there are uh, legislative things in place to prevent politicians from lying, create lies you know, in, in yeah. their political advertising, do that in-house. Do you want a company in Silicon Valley determining what is and what isn't a lie in the context of Canadian politics? I don't think so. Um, so I would prefer that Facebook defer to national regulators um, if, if they want to pursue that. If in Canada we do want to ban lying in political advertising, discipline it, fine. We can do that. We can mm -hmm. pass measures to do so. I don't want a foreign firm being the arbiter for what is and what isn't fair game in Canadian political advertising. So uh, you know, a part of, I think, Zuckerberg's point, not just the free speech thing, is being deferential. Facebook's a global platform, and you don't want Facebook to become a global regulator that enforces uh, maybe inconsistent guidelines across, you know, national mm -hmm. boundaries, which Facebook has dealt with, you know, for example, in the Rohingya genocide, right? Facebook's platform has been used to spread false information mm -hmm. in certain cases, you know, by politicians. But they've stepped in where things have become that bad. Otherwise, they've sort of let jurisdictions sort things out for themselves, at, you know, all, almost out of respect for their own political independence. So I, I think it's fair in that respect. I don't... You know, I don't. Uh, given Mark Zuckerberg's record mm -hmm. um, in the last two or three years, I, I don't think I want him to be the arbiter for what is and what isn't considered fair game in Canadian politics. Mm. Catherine Hepburn, any thoughts on this? Well, you know, <clears throat> uh, when I first started working with um, Spencer Tracy, you know, we, uh, this was in the in the thirties, you know, and. Um, the two of us uh, and worked together on a number of pictures, nine pictures, actually, yeah. Uh, you know, and throughout our time together, you know, uh, so much of it was uh, our relationship, both professional and otherwise, was <coughs> based on honesty. 
And, you know, Spencer would always say to me, you know, he would always come over and he would say, Katie, <clears throat> and I would say yes, and he would, you know, actually, <laughs> and he would say, you know, he actually had this fabulous anecdote all about, you know, when, <clears throat> when we were working with Sidney Poitier uh, on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, you know, Sidney had this wonderful story that he had learned, actually. You, you remember, of course, Sidney Poitier. He actually had, when he had been working on The Heat of the Night, he, he, he had learned this incredible, incredible story, which he had in turn, then when we were working together, had told Spencer, who had, then in, who had told me. Mm -hmm. All of this is to say, you know, I, I truly believe this Facebook monstrosity is is due for a bit of a, a breakup. <laughs> All right, uh, Quaid, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, it's complicated. Um, uh, it, it, the analogy between Facebook and a restaurant kind of breaks down a little bit for me. I mean, people will say Facebook's a private corporation, yes, but it's a private corporation with a quasi monopoly. And once you're in that position of such dominance, um, it, it, you almost become in the situation almost like a government. And I, like Sean, I'm very nervous with the idea of Facebook deciding who's lying and who isn't. Uh, so point one. Point two, it's remarkable to me to see the political parties uh, posturing on this question of lies, fake news, foreign actors coming, when they are the main propagators of lies and falsehoods virtually every day of their lives. Oh. Uh, um, you, you look at any political ad, it is usually some form of a lie. Uh, so they've got some answering themselves to do on, on that score. And I, again, I'm, I'm nervous about having anybody in government uh, regulating these things. Uh, it's admittedly self-serving for uh, Facebook and for Zuckerberg where they have um, basically, you know, become an open sewer pipe for all kinds of things, let, let alone lies, but you know, anti-Semitism and racism and everything else, in, in ways that we're only beginning to grapple with. I don't think anybody really wrapped their minds around uh, what what was this going to mean if we gave, you know, if we basically gave every human being access to a printing press. They used to say, you know, freedom of the press belongs to those who own a printing press. And it was restrictive in its own way, but at least there were gatekeepers. And I know this is a, a double-edged sword, but there were people who were who were trying to sort of regulate who was going to get access to the public square, and did they have some reasonable or, or, or argument to make, uh, or was it just complete lunacy or or you know offensive uh, racist rantings or well now all of that's got access. And there's nobody gatekeeping it at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure there's an answer to that. I don't think we have a, a simple answer to that uh, as much as we desire one where we can just go back to the, to the way it was or we can just suddenly pull a switch and all the bad stuff disappears from the internet. It's not gonna happen. And, and, and if anybody's comfortable with the idea of, maybe they're comfortable with you know, Justin Trudeau, a government less led by him regulating on these things, uh, but if they are, then they need to think, well, someday Andrew Scheer's gonna be in power, mm -hmm. uh, or somebody even worse than that, and are they comfortable with that person regulating uh, who's telling the truth and who's not? I, I just think we're, we're into a world now, whether we like it or not, where um, the worst of humanity uh, has every avenue open to it now to express its, its uh, thoughts and, and, and lies and everything else. And, and I don't think there's any simple answer to that. Jimmy Stewart, do you think there's any uh, solution? Well, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a 
big player on the Facebook. I've always been more of a Snapchat guy myself, but uh, uh, you know, it's it's hard because I'm I'm not a I'm not a big fan of, uh, of of censorship. You know, I think everyone's got to put their message out there, but but we got to also just use our common sense about what we believe. I mean, I was. I was in a little movie called Harvey uh, that some of you may know. I got nominated for an Oscar on that one. I didn't win, but uh, I got nominated. But in that movie, I, I talked to an imaginary uh, six-and-a-half-foot-tall rabbit. rabbit, right? And, and uh, you got to believe in what you believe in. So I guess my point is there's fake rabbits out there for all of us, and we got we to gotta choose which rabbits we believe in. And you can't worry about other people's fake rabbits, I guess. You got your own fake rabbits to believe in. So, uh, yeah, find you find your rabbits and believe in them. That's that's all I gotta say about that. Alright, we're gonna move on off of that. Yeah, that seemed like a good thing to end on. I think it's a good thing to end on. Let's go to our last topic, I think, for, for the night. Let's talk about infamy. So, Chair Girl is back in the news. Uh, yeah, and I know you're all super excited about hearing about Chair Girl again. It turns out her court date was moved again uh, until next month in November. Uh, the young woman became infamous in a viral video showing her throwing a chair off a high-rise balcony onto Toronto's busy Gardner Expressway. Now, uh, this isn't the first time she's had a court date moved or, miss a court, or missed court altogether or had her lawyer appear on her behalf. Uh, she missed one court date because she got a modeling uh, contract in Miami. And if you follow her on Instagram, Jimmy, do you follow her on Instagram? Yeah, sure do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, sure let's see. There you go, yeah. And she seems to be living the high life on, on uh, Instagram. Now, also uh, happening right now, former White House press secretary Sean Spicer is currently appearing on ABC's Dancing with the Stars. So Spicer, of course, made a name for himself by flat out lying in his very first uh, briefing to the White House press corps. And he continued to lie and was combative with the press throughout his time on the job. He uh, made a controversial, a controversial appearance at the Emmy Awards last year, and he seems to be enjoying his fame. So people have always cashed in or tried to cash in on their infamy, but has this gotten just so much worse in the age of social media? Uh, Catherine Hepburn, why don't we start with you about this? <laughs> Right. Well, you know, I, I would have to say yes. Uh, there was a time where I had to go back and buy out my my own contract yes. from uh, the studio in order to make pictures. And as you mentioned, I ended up buying the rights and uh, producing and putting out uh, the Philadelphia story. So that was that was uh, a choice I made, and I was extremely frustrated at the time. Uh, at a number of meetings with studio executives, in which I myself threw a number of chairs out of the window. <laughs> yeah. At one point, I threw a, a typewriter directly at a, a producer's head. And I, I find myself thinking that if there had been a paparazzo who could, as you say, take a photo with his telephone, I, I would have been in big trouble. Mm. You know, uh, there was so much that my generation was protected from because no one had the technology to expose us. And I will say that I think in some ways it's done, it's done very good things. We get to know 
the real face of the person often more quickly than we might have, or they might have been able to be protected for far too long. But now in this age of rapid information, we can actually have a chance to see, you know, who these people are. Uh, the flip side of that, of course, is that they then get to sometimes enjoy their fame. And that is upsetting. I won four Oscars. For God's sake, Jimmy. I won four Oscars. You didn't even go to collect them all. I don't need to. (laughs) They send them to my house. So I I won four Oscars. As you say, I have been an activist and feminist my entire life. Mm -hmm. I I worked with some of the greatest minds in cinema. Uh, And the fact that people might not know mine or Jimmy's name, but will know the name of some disgraced idiot, uh, you know, uh, on Instagram, I find <laughs> appalling. So uh, I, I would argue that, yes, you, you know, we, we, have, we have done ourselves a disservice by heightening these, these people and allowing them to take any of our time. Mm-hmm. Sean Craig, what are your thoughts? Your question was whether or not infamy has gotten worse in the era of social media. So focusing on that specific question, sure. uh, no, I don't think so. In, in 1890s London, you know, Jack the Ripper was getting more ink space than Oscar Wilde. Right. Um, what social media has done is it's destabilized all media and the way we interact with people. And so, you know, we all know the famous Warhol quote that everyone will be famous in the future for 15 minutes. Right. But the, you know, there's a Scottish artist named Nick Curry who had a great quote where he said, "Everyone in the future will be famous to 15 people." <laughs> he said, you know, he said this about 20 years ago. And right. and we live in an era where you know media has destabilized in a way that we all have an access to an audience, mm-hmm. um, which means that infamy and fame you engage with in different ways, but they still exist on the same plateau. And I think it's more enjoyable. I mean, I, hell, I, I, like, I go on TikTok all the time, and I, I interact with teenagers now who get like 60,000 hits because they've made some funny parody political video or something like that. Someone uh, is so hitting teenagers? I hit teenagers, yes. Oh, for and God's so the, sake. Uh, so, no, so, so the, the amount of like content and interaction that I have with you know, people doing things right. on both infamous and famous levels uh, is, I think, more interesting than any time in human history. Uh, I, you know, I think fame and infamy have been destabilized, but so has the entire media ecosystem and the way we consume information. So I don't know. Infamy is no worse or less. Um, in fact, I think it's almost better because you can curate the information that you get nowadays. That's interesting. Andrew Coyne, what are your thoughts? Well, it's, um, <clears throat> I'll get the, give the uh, the more pessimistic version of what Sean was saying, which is, <laughs> yeah. it's absolutely true that uh, interesting individualistic people who might not have had access to the media in the past uh, can can get access now, can put out their message. Oftentimes, they prove to be more interesting, more sharp than the mainstream media. Uh, they have talents that maybe. Uh, um, uh, 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 an intermediary wouldn't have recognized, but an audience can instantly recognize, and they can go a much quicker route to reaching that audience. All that's to good. The unfortunate reality, however, is there's a lot of other people out there who are just damaged, uh, um, um, nasty, crazy lunatics who also now have an audience and a, and a reach that they never would have had before. And they're not getting that audience because people are compassionate and concerned about them or looking to uh, understand them. They're getting that because they're basically a freak show. Uh, and we have the institutionalized version of that in a lot of the reality shows on the mainstream media where you know it's basically built around, ha ha, look at these people uh, making asses of themselves. Uh, and oftentimes it's, it's frankly disturbing. They're people who are really in need of help. 
but you also have the, the, the YouTube stars, et cetera, uh, who, who basically parlay their own shamelessness and, and psychological damage into notoriety, and that's a disturbing comment on, on all of us that we're willing to enable that. That was a downer. Yeah, uh, yeah it really was. Yeah, it was. That's what I'm here for. It's all good. So, uh, Jimmy Stewart, final well, thoughts. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, the thing with like this, this, the, the, the chair, chair girl, or whatever you want to call her, there, is, and uh, people like that. Like, sure, they're. Uh, they're, they're becoming famous or infamous and all that, and right or wrong, I don't know. But the thing with, uh, with people like that is they, uh, they, I don't blame them necessarily. I mean, you blame them for their actions, but, uh, but they only become famous or infamous because we turn them into that, because we're all going, I want to see what they're up to or what they're doing, right? You can't be famous if nobody wants to watch you. So, uh, I mean, I, I guess I blame society for being interested in what that damn chair girl or whatever's up to, you know? It's the people watching. It's like when I was doing that movie, uh, Rear Window, you know, and mm -hmm. I was, I, it was one of my best performances. Didn't get an Oscar for it. You but, were very uh, good in that film. Thank you. That yeah. means nothing to me. You were in a cast but, uh, in, a in a wheelchair. I was in a cast in a wheelchair, yeah. That was, I, I was method, times. too. I actually broke my own leg just so I would really know what it was like to be in that wheelchair. But I read I, that Hitchcock broke your leg. Is that Well, there was, well, we did get into a fight over what kind of wheelchair wheelchair I'd be using, and okay. then uh, I'd, I'd, yeah. I'll take credit for it. Don't okay. twist my words there. Uh, but I was watching people with, yeah. uh, with the binoculars, you know, and uh, I mean, they were doing whatever they're doing, going about, going about their lives. I'm yeah. turning them into something because I'm the one watching, so yeah. I blame the viewers is my point. We all got to turn that, turn that viewership around on ourselves, you know, and blame, bl blame, blame yourself. That's what I'm telling you. Wise words, Jimmy Stewart. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And that is the end of the show. Yeah. All right. I'd like to thank uh, our tech this evening, Anya, Luke, for recording the show. Yeah. Music for the panel show is provided by the Jim Clayton Trio. I'd like to thank our panel, Andrew Coyne. Yay. Sean Craig. Liz Johnson as Catherine Hepburn. And Kerry Griffith, that's pretty close to himself, is Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> I'm David Shore, and I played Professor Pipe. I am in prison, but that's a whole other story. Uh, we'll be back here in this very room on November 30th with an all-new show. I'd also like to thank everyone here at Comedy Bore. Comedy Bore? It's a boring place. Comedy Bar? Yes. Uh, next weekend on Monkey Toast Improvised Talk Show, our special guests are co communications expert, Dr. Andrea Wojnicki, and SCTV alum and Emmy Award winning costume designer and leader of the Jewel Hallemeyer dancers, Jewel Hallemeyer. So and you can get info about that and all of our shows at monkeytoast.com or you can follow us at Twitter at MT Toronto or on Instagram and Facebook at Monkey Toast. Thank you so much for coming out. We hope to see you all again soon. Thanks, everybody. Well, there you go. And that was our first episode of the panel show podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We certainly had a lot of fun doing the show. If you want to come see us live, we are at Comedy Bar in downtown Toronto on a monthly basis, typically the last Saturday of the month. We will not have a, a December show and we take the summer off as well. You can get more info on our website, monkeytoast.com. We produce all of our shows via Monkey Toast and also directly at the Comedy Bar website, comedybar.ca. If you have any questions or if you want to email in a possible uh, topic suggestion, 
suggestion or a question for our panelists, you can also email us via the Monkey Toast website. I'd like to thank our uh, editor, Alex McMurray, for editing the show and putting it together. And also the music for the panel show has been provided by the James Clayton Trio. Thank you very much. We hope to uh, we hope you'll join us sometime at Comedy Bar.